This episode has graphic content and adult language. It is not recommended for anyone under 18 years of age. Listener discretion is highly advised. Hi guys, welcome. My name is Harmony and I'm your host here on What the Actual F. If you're new here, welcome. If you are a follower of the podcast, welcome back. I love having you guys here every week. So today I have a very interesting case for you. This case actually involves a young Ashton Kutcher. When one night in 2001, he goes to pick up his then-girlfriend, but she doesn't answer the door. Even though they had plans, he still leaves, unknowing to him that just on the other side of that door, she is lying in a pool of her own blood, having been murdered by the Hollywood Ripper. I was the one who found her. I woke up and I had a cup of coffee and I was going out to my van. And I just happened to see two little tennis shoes sticking up by the side door. When I saw it was her, I dropped a coffee cup. So to begin this case, we need to go to Glenview, Illinois, and the time is 1993. That's right, guys. We're in the 90s right now. Trisha Picaccio was a popular recent Glenbrook South High School graduate, only 18 years old. She was loved by many who had nothing but great things to say about her. To her, there wasn't someone who wasn't a friend. Being the young age of 18 and just getting out of high school, like many of us, she was out partying with her friends often, which is exactly what she was doing on the night of August 13th, 1993. Patricia had gone out with some friends for a scavenger hunt, which she left around 1 a.m. with a friend that she was going to drop off on her way home. After she drops her friend off at her house, she arrives at her home, but Patricia would never make it inside. As Patricia locks her door, she begins walking to her front door, where somebody jumps out of the bushes and brutally stabs Patricia to death. I remember just waking up to this blood-curling scream of my father. Just the second I heard it, I knew something was very badly wrong. I was the first responder to the scene back in 1993. I walked to the south side of the home, and that's where I saw the victim lying on the ground near the garage. She had a lot of blood on her shirt or her blouse. At that time, I was guessing she was stabbed numerous times. But who was responsible for this brutal crime? During the Cook County's investigation of Patricia's murder, they had about 15 suspects they were looking into early on, but one of them stuck out more than any other. The friend of the victim's two brothers was our immediate suspect. Mike Gargiulo is a very powerful young man, and he flat refused to cooperate with the police. The state's attorney's office, they wanted more than we had at that time. Mike Gargiulo went to California to get out of the scrutiny that had been focused on him here in Illinois. Born Michael Thomas Gargiulo on February 15, 1976 in Chicago, he was raised at 803 Waddell Lane in Glenview as of 1996, near the Picacho family. Their home was just down the road on Hubber Lane. He attended Glenbrook South High School where he was one year behind Patricia. Teachers and students described Michael as, quote, a little off the wall. He isn't really mentioned in the 93 to 94 Glenbrook South yearbook, although he would have been a senior in high school. In previous yearbooks, he was pictured as a member of sophomore and varsity football teams alongside Trisha's brother, Doug. Now, Patricia's family believes that the case wasn't handled how it should have been, and that they claim the media portrayed Patricia as a drug-using, sexually active girl that just liked to party making her murder seem almost as though she did something to bring this on herself. A very common and fucking disgustingly form of victim shaming that is done often in the media. 
all because they believe somebody is not living their version of a cookie-cutter life. This leads to investigators, police, and quite frankly, the public all looking down on a victim and leaving their investigation to be absolutely botched. If you ask me, any crime needs to be looked into, especially a murder, it doesn't matter what their backstory is. Nobody deserves to have their life ripped from them like that. But we're not here to talk about the justice system and all of its loopholes, even though you were here in this episode exactly how they are worked so well. And with that, we're off to Hollywood. Hey for everybody. Welcome to Hollywood, baby. We have now time traveled eight years into the future. 2001 and we're in Hollywood. We can become a star, but most of all, we are thousands of miles away from Patricia's murder. And now I'm going to tell you about a beautiful 22-year-old Northern Californian named Ashley Ellerin who was enjoying her life in Hollywood. The Hollywood lifestyle was a massive change for her from her life in Northern California. She lived with three of her closest friends that made up her core friend group. Justin Peterson, Jennifer DeSesto, and Chris Duran. She was just beautiful and, and fun and spontaneous. Really, the connection between this big group of friends was kind of partying and having a great time. Very free-spirited lifestyle. Right. You were young. You were young. Ashley moved to Hollywood with dreams of getting into fashion. She was enrolled at the Los Angeles School of Design and Merchandising. Now, Ashley may have gone to school during the day, but at night was when her and her friends would go out and enjoy the nightlife that Los Angeles had to offer, which I'm a little jealous of because I've always wanted to go to California. Somebody write me and tell me what it's like, like really like, because the movies and everything I see make it look amazing. And then I'm here in Florida. Yeah, please send help. It was during one of her nights out with her friends that Ashley caught the eye of a young rising star, Ashton Kutcher, who was only 23 at the time. We had hung out with them a couple of times. They had like, you know, maybe gone out on a couple of dates or whatever. So the night of February 21st, 2001 comes around. Ashton asks Ashley to attend a party with him for Grammy night. I knew they were going to be hanging out, going to a Grammy party. It was Grammy night. Right? Yeah, it was Grammy night. He was just, I thought, picking her up to take her. Yeah, he was just oh, he was picking her up that to take her to the party. So Ashton arrives at Ashley's house around 1045 that night. He was running a little behind schedule, so when she didn't answer the door, he thought that she was maybe upset with him because he didn't let her know, hey, I'm going to be a little late. So thinking, okay, she's upset, it's fine, I'll talk to her tomorrow, he goes ahead and heads out. Now, according to interviews that were done by investigators, before Ashton left her house, he peeked into her front windows and said that he saw what looked like a dark red stain on the ground. He didn't really think much of it at the time though, because just a few days before, Ashley and her roommates had had a small little house party. So Ashton assumed that this was just red wine. Sadly, however, it was not. It would be Ashley's roommate who would discover the brutal crime scene that was just on the other side of the door Ashton had been knocking on. They say the stabbing happened Wednesday night. I remember it like it was yesterday. I entered the house there was two steps to the left here and Ashley was laying across the two stairs. Absolutely uh, blue and covered in blood. A sense of trauma just came over me. I thought maybe the person was still there and I kind of ran out. Ended up getting to the car and calling for my cell phone, 911. It still traumatizes me to this day. 
Now, Tom Small was one of the first responders to arrive to 1911 Pinehurst Road. And several years after this, he would still recount it as one of the worst crime scenes he has ever seen in his career. I observed quite a large amount of blood and not too short uh, distance was Ashley's body. A lot of anger, a lot of rage. Somebody had isolated Ashley Ellerin, the, the killer, and was very, very angry when he did it. I'm just going to give you an idea of how brutal we are talking of a crime scene here. Ashley was stabbed a total of 47 times. Now, even in this scene of a very apparent attack, signs that somebody was in there and did this to her, there wasn't much evidence that was left by a killer. Yeah, we were just looking for any type of direction or clues that would uh, to lead to a suspect. Ashley's close friends decide to reach out to investigators and tell them about a guy that Ashley recently met in the neighborhood. The information we have is that he introduced himself as a heating and air guy. Ultimately uh, got some additional information. I was able to come up with some photos and, and identify him as Michael Thomas Gargiulo. Now here is where we learn exactly how Michael would gain entry into the homes of his victims. Michael would show up as an AC repairman. Okay, when I first learned that this is how he gained entry, all I could think of, there is no way in hell that I would open the door for some random repairman for anything that I hadn't scheduled, especially if I am home alone. However, unfortunately for Ashley and her roommates, they did need repair work. And this is exactly how Michael gained his entry into her house. We had heater problems. So he came in, you know, we sat there, we looked at the heater, and he started telling us all the crazy stories that, you know, he was a um, professional boxer. What's your name? Mike Gargiulo. Okay, this is something I need to share with you guys because I find it to be hilarious. And it really explains Michael's character. Michael shared with Ashley and her friends that he had a short career as an amateur boxer. I really hope he emphasized the short aspect of that because he didn't lie at all, actually. He was an amateur boxer. You see, in 1998, about a year after Michael moved to Hollywood, he, he had a, a starring role in a movie. Yeah, see, Michael moved to Hollywood because he had dreams of being on the big screen. And that happened. He was given a small role in Temple Brown's USC graduate film thesis as none other than, you guessed it, an amateur boxer. I just want to say, really, what blows my mind about Michael with this situation with the amateur boxer, but it was a film scenario, is I don't get why he couldn't have just said the truth. He's in a Hollywood setting, and he could have stated, oh, so I, I played an amateur boxer once in this uh, film. It was actually kind of cool. But no. Instead, he leaves that part out and just states that he had a short career as an amateur boxer. And that's just my two cents on that. Now, another interesting note that I wanted to share is Temple, the creator of the film thesis project that, you know, he played this amateur boxer in. Temple noted that when Mike wasn't on screen and acting, he would shift his mannerisms and his attitude. And it was kind of notable. This is going to be something... That is repeated. I think he was perfect for that part. He looked at and he performed it very well. But I think he was sort of withdrawn, maybe somewhat shy even. Just kind of very quiet and I would say kind of kept to himself. Didn't really talk a whole lot. 
This is going to be something that is noted by a few people in Michael's life, including Ashley and her friends. They noticed something a little odd about Michael too. I'd also like to note that none of these attacks are sexually motivated. Another thing that sort of reinstates this is Ashley's friends even mention that Michael didn't seem to have a sexual obsession with her. He was more obsessed with her and her life. It was one occasion when he was observed sitting in a vehicle. And it was early in the morning. The engine was running and he was just looking in the direction of Ashley's house, just sitting there. I was walking and then found him sitting in his car at the end of the street with the motor running. And I went in and I, I just remember keep calling Ashley. Where did you find this guy? This is very odd. Why is this guy in front of our house at 2, 3 in the morning? A lot of people make this claim about Michael that there's a switch to him. And I believe that this incident may have been the switch point for Michael when it came to Ashley. The incident that takes place is Justin arrives home and sees Michael sitting in his car just watching the house, looking in the windows, watching whatever Ashley's doing. To anybody else, that is fucking insane. So Justin goes inside, does not confront Michael, and lets everyone know what he just saw. Nobody says anything to Michael that day, but he does come over the next day. It was at this point that Justin flat out confronted Michael about what he saw. I said, what the hell were you doing in front of my house at 2, 3 in the morning? He started to go on about how the fact that he couldn't go home last night because the FBI was waiting for him at his home to collect DNA samples from Chicago. Some murder, his best friend's girlfriend was murdered or whatever. And I said, well, what, what do you have to hide? He uh, immediately put his leg up on the couch and started to pull out a knife that was like, you know, a strap to his ankle here. And what are you thinking? This guy's telling you that he point, might be involved with the murder. At that point, I, I rushed him out of the house. It was during this conversation that they learned that Michael is possibly being looked at for a murder. Believing that Michael's a bit off of his hinges, not really wanting anything to do with him, but not seeing him as exactly a threat, they try to, you know, basically say, hey, you know, it's been cool, but I, I hope you have a great life, just not involved in mine. Michael's fear of being a suspect in Patricia's murder and what he tells Ashley and her roommates, this conversation is exactly what lands him on police's radar. After Ashley's murder, after they hear about this mysterious guy that she met recently before her death, who was this AC repairman, a amateur boxer, you know, this this guy, who is he? So they look into him because if he's a suspect to a murder, then maybe, maybe, I'm just shooting in the dark, he could have done this. This is when they find the details of Patricia's murder and how gruesome they are. Those gruesome details are eerily similar to Ashley's. She had a lot of blood on her shirt or her blouse. I was guessing she was stabbed numerous times. I heard a lady screaming and I turned and looked because I was still in the front yard and the mother is running towards Trish. I basically tackled her and I didn't want her to see Trish like this and remember her daughter like that. I stated that I found it pretty interesting that a lot of people have this claim about Michael that there's a shift in him. I found that as well being stated by people from his hometown. They state that there's one side to Michael which seems to be this 
average kind of insecure teenager. The other side of Mike was he had what I call a crazy switch, where if he really wanted something and he was going to get it one way or another, and he flipped the switch, all emotions gone. Now, even though there were people in Michael's life that may have been suspicious of him, including the police, Patricia's parents were not. In fact, they never saw him as a violent or dangerous person, and he was over their house all the time. However, even though Michael was best friends with Patricia's brother, he and Patricia were not friends. According to others, she was just considered Doug's sister to the guys that hung around Doug and Michael. Then, about a year after Patricia's murder, Michael starts to draw attention to himself with very strange behavior. It first started with the flower. flower. He brought the end flowers. I'm like, why is Michael bringing us? It was live greenery. At Easter time, he brought us a lily. He brought us a dinner certificate to a restaurant. And then he even brought him a shirt. So it's like, wait a minute, nobody else was... And I said to him, why is Michael giving us all of this stuff? And people were telling the detectives at the time what was going on. This completely strange and unprompted behavior from Michael would catch the eye of two Cook County detectives, Jack Reed and Mark Baldwin, causing them to look a little closer into our friend Michael. One of the psychologists that was talking to us says he's trying to expiate his sin. He's trying to atone for his crime with the presence that he was giving to family. Not only when they start digging into Michael's past do they learn that he's been arrested, but it's when they start approaching people and asking about Michael that they learn of a very interesting conversation he had with his best friend and Patricia's brother, Doug. He looked at me and he said, if you knew who did this, would you kill them or could you kill them? I said, well, what do you think? Ask any father, any brother, anybody, I think you know the answer. The police called me later on, Detective Jack Reed, and said, do you realize that Michael Gargiulo called us and told us that you threatened him? When Mike does eventually talk to the detectives, he starts to paint a different picture and starts to tell them of a very suspicious friend of his. When we were finally able to compel Mike Gargiulo to talk to us, he was aware that we had shown some interest in one of his good friends, Eric Agassim. He's the nicest girl I've ever known. Eric was a close friend of Doug and Michael's. He lived in the neighborhood, and he was a person of interest, according to investigators. Michael knew that Eric was kind of being looked at as a person that could have been connected to the murder. And this is where he kind of uh, took advantage of the situation and knew because they're looking at Eric and questioning him, well, this was his chance to really make Eric look guilty. He attempted at that time to lay all the suspicion on his doorstep by telling us that the morning after the murder, Eric came to his home and asked him to come along so he could hide something, a gym bag. We asked Mike Arjul what was inside the bag. I have no idea. Now Michael tells the detectives that he believes his friend Eric had the murder weapon in a bag that he brought over the day after the crime. And while he's telling them his story of these events that happen, he's really kind of pushing in that Eric is your guy. He's guilty. You don't need to be looking at me. No, I'm telling you, it's all him. It's right here. It's in the bag. There's an, it's in the bag. Case is in the bag. Eric's bag, his gym bag. I mean, he really laid it in thick. And guess what? This tactic really worked. 
he successfully threw the detectives completely off his trail. So they took his statement and they go to Eric, but guess what? Eric is refusing to cooperate with them, in turn, making him their number one suspect. Now, it was a toss-up. Was it Eric? Was it Michael? They weren't able to tie either one definitively there. We're going to learn that this doesn't exactly make sense later. So then, five years after Patricia's death, Michael just shows up at her house. Michael showed up at that door and he says, I need to talk to Rick. And I said, well, he's at work, Michael. And he said, well, can I wait for him? I said, yes. He sat and waited for an, over an hour for him to come home from work, sat at my kitchen table. I remember walking in the garage door and I looked at him. He, he had this look on his face like he was going to say something to me. The garage door opens, his father and one of his sisters come in and say, we have to leave, Michael. And they picked him up and whisked him hey. out. The visit was so bizarre and so unprompted that immediately Patricia's parents knew Michael was the one who killed their daughter. In fact, they believed it so much that Patricia's father, Rick, called the sheriff and told him just that. However, if police had wanted to talk to Michael, they would no longer be able to because Michael was off chasing his dreams and going to become a famous movie star or serial killer. I don't know, whichever comes first. We're going to find out though. Uh, she was a mother and a wife and a daughter and a sister. I mean, she was all of those things. She had come to this country from El Salvador as a, an adolescent. She met and married her husband when she was a young woman. She had uh, two-year-old twins and I believe a four-year-old and a five-year-old. The setting now is 2005, 12 years after Patricia's murder and just four years after Ashley's. Michael was living in an apartment in El Monte, a suburb of Los Angeles. Also by now, two women that Michael had known had been brutally killed with both of their cases growing cold. This is when the body of 32-year-old Maria Bruno is discovered. And wouldn't you know, to nobody's surprise, Michael lives in the area. But, okay, hear me out. It's not just in the area. Nope, mm-mm. He lives in the same apartments. Yep, yep, same exact ones. But, but, not just the same exact apartments. Michael's apartment is across from Maria's. He can sit at his window or on his little balcony area and see directly into Maria's windows, completely undetected. I just want to interject real fast in this. Uh, one thing I noticed about the locations of Michael's apartments, they were all on the second floor. And because of that, he had a way that he could look down at his victim's apartments and would not be seen. He was at angles and up high. He had a clear view, but it was very hard for them to see him. Now, Maria lived alone too. Her and her husband had recently separated and he had custody of their kids. Screen was removed from a, a ground floor kitchen window. It appears from the evidence that he obtained a weapon there in the kitchen and that he then uh, entered into her bedroom where she was asleep. We're talking about a 90 pound 32-year-old woman, defenseless, asleep in her bed in her home where if there's any one place in the world she should feel most secure, that attack is every woman's nightmare. Another thing I want to note here that's very common between a lot of the investigators in all of these cases, 
all of these scenes are extremely graphic and brutal and I can't exactly express that enough via a podcast because there's not a visual aid which I don't think you'd want in these scenes. They are very graphic. These victims are stabbed so many times. Their hands are thrown up. There's, it's, it's brutal. The things that I was reading just shocked me. Which brings me to this common statement that is said by all of these investigators. Almost every investigator has stated to date, these are some of the most brutal scenes they've ever come into contact with and they still haunt them to this day. His brutality and the gruesome nature of these crime scenes alone in California were what deemed him to be the Hollywood Ripper. The violence that was visited upon her, if that's the right way to say it, was phenomenal. After she was dead, her body was somewhat mutilated. And you just, you know, that's, that's crap you see in the movies. In real life, that, that is very rare. It just doesn't happen. Now, when investigators are looking into Maria's murder, to them, it looks as though Maria was killed just to be killed. It also baffled them because she didn't seem to have anyone in her life that would want to do this to her. Yes, she separated from her husband and he had custody of the kids, but there wasn't anything that would make him do that. They also quickly ruled out the possibility of it being a home burglary gone wrong, also ruling out sexual assault as well as the motive. So they had a brutal crime scene that just seemed completely spontaneous and unmotivated. They were baffled. However, this scene did have something different than the last two murders. The killer left something behind. Just outside was a blue shoe booty cover with a bit of blood on the bottom. This blood was then tested and came back as a match to Maria's. Though they had this phenomenal clue left behind by this killer, they didn't have any evidence of the killer themselves. Although this was a great piece of evidence, the lead got them nowhere. And just like Patricia and Ashley's cases, there would be no other evidence that would be found to lead them to their killer, leaving the Hollywood Ripper to once again strike. I got the call at about uh, 12.30 in the morning. They asked me to come out and... Uh respond to a uh, scene of a stabbing or attempted murder had occurred. Again, we are time traveling in this podcast and welcoming ourselves to 2008. We are heading to California, Santa Monica to be exact. This is where a woman was attacked and survived to tell her story. This victim, as far as I have seen, has tried to keep her identity hidden, so I'm going to respect her wishes on that as well. This poor woman is laying and sleeping in her what she believes safe room and is startled awake by the feeling of a knife plunging deep inside of her body. And just like all of the other scenes, she is stabbed multiple times throughout her body. Her hands were even cut up from her injuries as she fought her attacker, repeatedly grabbing for the knife in an effort to get him off of her. She was stabbed multiple times uh, in her chest and shoulder and, and right arm, suffered several wounds to both of her hands as she's grabbing this knife as it's being plunged down upon her, uh, where those wounds all required surgery. And at some point, there's a, a lull in the action, so to speak, and uh, she was able to get her feet up and kick him off of her, um, and that's where he then uh, took off running and left the location. It was noted by the victim that the attacker said something to her. He said, and I quote, I'm sorry. When her attacker ran, he was leaving a trail of blood behind him. 
This blood trailed down the front stairs of her porch and into an alley, which investigators followed. However, it was in that alley that the blood trail stopped. This led them to believe that the attacker was just long gone and could not be anywhere near the scene of the crime. The blood that had been trailed was found and sampled and sealed. Then 25 days later, a DNA profile was matched to a sample. I said, I've got my guy, Michael Varjulo. Well, <laughs> would you look at that? The blood matched Michael, our buddy here, fucking psychopath McGee. So within 24 hours of the results, Michael's arrested and charged with attempted murder. Shockingly, when arrested on June 6, 2008, they realized Michael lived directly across from the woman via the alley where the blood stopped. Yeah, the one where the blood just all of a sudden was gone. It was gone because he made it home. And that home was right next to where they were standing the whole time. Another thing about his apartment that was across this alley is his windows could see directly into the victim's bedroom if her blinds were open. Now that Michael was in custody, investigators start to learn of cold cases that were eerily similar to our fourth victim. Cases that involved people who lived remarkably close to Michael at the time of their death. His response once he was put into the police car to be taken to the station for booking um, was, which agency is this? That tells me a lot. It tells me that uh, he wasn't sure of which crime he's getting charged for. Michael's DNA had been able to be matched because of a sample that Cook County had taken from him during the investigation into Patricia's murder, which investigators would soon find out Michael was the number one suspect in. As soon as investigators began to look at these cold cases, the dots started to connect and Michael's reign of terror is truly discovered. In 2002, Cook County reached out to investigators in Los Angeles and Tom Small, who happened to be working the recent case of Ashley Ellerin, they were talking about their cases and requesting samples of DNA. The samples that they needed were Michael Gargiulo's, which is odd because Tom Smalls answered the phone when this call came in and realizes, hmm, Michael Gargiulo, that's a person of interest in my case. He keeps coming up and knew Ashley. Odd. And I'm sure if we were to ask Michael about the whole everybody that you know around you dying, what do you have to say about that? Coincidence, my guy. Coincidence. I'm innocent. Uh, it was just a, a, I don't know, stroke of luck. Even with Tom looking for Michael, it would take him about a year to find and collect his DNA. It was this sample that would break the case wide open and show the true identity of the Hollywood Ripper. With detectives of the fourth attack now aware of Michael's connection in possibly two murders, they reach out to see if Michael is connected to an attack in El Monte as well, the attack that led to the murder of Maria Bruno. During this investigation, they also get a search warrant for Michael's old apartment that was across from Maria's, the one where his window could see creepily down into hers. Yeah, that one. My mom said, looking at, oh, wow, this is very, very similar. And sure enough, in the attic of the apartment, we wound up finding a matching booty, a blue cotton booty, just like the same one that we had found at the crime scene, the same manufacturer, the same make, the same model of booty. It was there that they would find the evidence they needed to connect Michael to all four of these vicious attacks, three of which left their victims dead. With all this evidence, they believed that they had enough to formally charge Michael. Then, on September 4th, 2008, while he was in jail for the attack in Santa Monica, two more charges were filed against him. 
They were for the murders of Ashley Elrin and Maria Bruno. And we got ourselves a serial killer. So now Michael is in jail for the crimes that he's connected to in California, yet he claims he did not do. Be it guilty or not, he is definitely connected, so he's in jail for these. But just like me, and I'm probably you, all investigators are wondering the same thing. Why was he not arrested in Cook County for the murder of Patricia? They even had evidence connecting him. It was discovered in 2003 that a sample of his DNA that was collected in Los Angeles was a direct match to the DNA of an unknown sample discovered on Patricia's dead body. They decide not to act on DNA evidence. The evidence just hasn't been there. I wish we could bring closure to her family tomorrow. Now, I'm going to share this with you because I find it very interesting as to why he was not arrested from Cook County in relation to Patricia's murder when the DNA came back as a match. As they state, this isn't a true link that he was there at the scene of the murder because Michael Gargiulo was always in their house. He was best friends with Patricia's brother, Doug. To me, that doesn't exactly tell me that his DNA should be on her body when she's found deceased, but again, I am not an investigator. But in my humble non-investigator opinion, one plus one definitely equals two. And that's math. DNA can be left by either a defensive wound or it can be left by casual contact. He was a friend of the family at the time, or at least uh, was present at the house on multiple occasions. Because Cook County only used a single swab to collect evidence from her nails, they could not determine where his sample had been found. With this, what I mean is there is two different kinds of catches that they look at. Because DNA is going to be on people and it doesn't always link you to a crime, which is something Michael takes advantage of. If the DNA is underneath the nails, this is considered a defense catch. If it is on top of the nail, this could have just happened in passing, especially because Michael was always at their house. Doug, her brother, was his best friend. They were there all the time hanging out. And possibly on the day or night of this whole thing, he could have brushed against her walking by her is what they have to go by apparently. Even though if you ask me, which again, I am not a detective, I'm not an investigator, they had already named him a suspect and then his DNA comes back on her body when she's found dead, yet they're just like, well, you know, <laughs> I don't know, it's a long shot. I don't think we could do it. Mm -mm. I'm not gonna claim to say that I understand investigations and I don't, I've never worked one. So I'm sure they have their reasons and I know there's logistics and you have to have beyond a reasonable doubt, even though we've talked about cases that convict with little to no evidence. So with that, we're just gonna keep going forward because I always get flustered in these things because it seems like every investigation just botches itself. Would it have been better if the swabs had been done a different way? Certainly with the, the science that we have now, we could have taken advantage of that. So due to their inability to make a true, clear determination if the sample was from the casual contact or defense, which of course was due to them not collecting the evidence with separate swabs, Michael went free. Something Michael depended on. He knew how to work his way through the system and in all of its shortcomings, taking full advantage of the gray area in the laws. Michael also uses the defense that just because someone's DNA is at a crime scene does not mean that, you know, they committed the crime. I agree with Michael. Your DNA can be 
anywhere and it doesn't mean that you were there when something happens. But what is very <laughs> crazy to me is that his DNA happens to be at several crimes and on the victim's body. I mean, that's that's a bit of a quinky dink, don't you think, Michael? But again, <laughs> I'm not an investigator, so pff, what do I know? DNA does not prove that someone, somebody committed a crime. DNA just uh, pretty much says that the person was present or could have been present. Even with mounds of evidence against Michael, he professes his innocence to this day. I'm 100% innocent. Along with claiming that he is innocent, he claims that he's been wrongfully charged and the case and evidence against him is 100% incorrect. However, investigators do not believe him at all and believe that there may be more victims that he has not been connected to yet. The break would finally come to indict Michael on Patricia's murder after a Hollywood Ripper special aired. An ex-coworker of Michael's saw the special, prompting him to reach out to authorities. When he did so, he told them of an odd conversation he had with Michael. In this conversation, Michael admitted to killing a young girl in Chicago a while back. Like everything good about me and the fair person that I am and everything. Finally, on August 15th, 2019, Michael was convicted on all counts. The penalty phase of his California trial started on October 7th, 2019. He faced either a death sentence or life in prison without the possibility of parole. Once he is sentenced, Michael faces extradition back to Illinois to face the first-degree murder charge relating to Patricia Picaccio. If Michael is convicted in Illinois, he will face a sentence of 25 years to life, added to his already given sentence for his California crimes. On October 18, 2019, a jury recommended the death penalty for Michael Gargiulio after several hours of deliberation, but as of March 2020, Sentencing in his case in California continued to be delayed by defense motions. He is fighting it tooth and nail. But before you go and uh, think, oh, well, maybe he is innocent, I would like to tell you something that I saved for last because it's alleged. Allegedly, Michael told authorities in the Los Angeles County Jail that just because 10 women were killed and his DNA was present does not mean he murdered anyone. 10. I'm sorry, Michael. You're charged with four. This left investigators to obviously believe that, well, there's probably more victims. Late yesterday, we filed a criminal complaint in court charging Michael Gargiulo with first-degree murder in the brutal slaying of Picaccio. So that was today's case, guys. When I learn exactly what happens in Michael's sentencing, I will give you an update. I hope you guys enjoyed today's case. I know that is always odd for me to say as it's not exactly a wonderful topic, but these are things that interest me and apparently if you're here, they interest you too. As always, let me know if there are any cases, crimes, mysteries, conspiracies, hauntings, or anything that you want me to dive into and tell you all about. You can send an email to me at whattheactualeffharmony at gmail.com. Before I go, I just want to say thanks to you guys. Thank you so much for your support and spending this time with me every week. I hope you guys look forward to it as much as I do. Also, if you want to, you can follow me and the podcast on social media as well. I love you guys and I will talk to you next week on the next episode of What the Actual F. Sweet screams and stay safe.